Deep in the imagination, there's a crossroads, a space where curiosity and inspiration intersect and give birth to ideas. A space where music, science fiction, comic books, and pop culture inform the mind of what is and what could be. This is Jeff Boucher's Mind Space. In each episode, legendary journalist Jeff Boucher welcomes the biggest names in genre entertainment for an expansive dive into all things pop culture. Journey with Jeff as he explores the latest news and recommendations of the hottest releases across entertainment with his most trusted confidants. You are now entering deep space. Heavy Metal presents Jeff Boucher's Mind Space. Well, welcome to Mind Space. Uh, I'm Jeff Boucher, and I'm here with Maya St. Clair. And uh, today we're very excited. Um, this is a really big deal uh, to have this guest today. Uh, Ed Zwick is one of my favorite filmmakers and one of the smartest people in Hollywood. And uh, and his career gives me faith because he's a former journalist, and uh, all of us journalists love people that uh, that get over the wall. Uh, but uh, the guy's a really impressive filmmaker. Um, Maya, tell us, tell us some of the stuff he's done, in fact. Yeah, Zwick is a writer-director slash producer. Some of his early producing work is those 90s historical dramas like Dangerous Beauty and Shakespeare in Love. He was the producer behind that. Um, since then, he's worked as a director and writer for films like The Last Samurai, Glory, Blood Diamond, um, Legends of the Fall, lots of historical or pieces based in realism events in the world. You and Zwick talk about the journalistic bent to his work, which I think is really interesting. Yeah, yeah, it, it does. It feels like he's uh, his stuff either has a, a literary sense to it, like Legends of the Fall, mm -hmm. uh, or a real journalistic sense, like Blood Diamond or something in between, which is like glory, uh, which feels mm -hmm. like a little bit of both. Uh, so uh, yeah, he's wicked smart and uh, he's uh, uh, a really lovely guy. So uh, let's, let's get into the interview and then we'll uh, uh, chat after. I can't tell you how much I appreciate you coming on the show and how nice it is to talk to you. Uh, I'm a big fan and also I, I always adore any journalist that goes on to become a filmmaker. I'm fascinated by that. <laughs> you know, because it, gives, it gives me hope that there might be some tunnel out that I've missed. Uh, <laughs> but uh, more than that, um, I think like the journalistic background you have, uh, writing for Rolling Stone and New Republic, it really seems to inform the way that you approach your films. Uh, it, it, there seems like almost a journalistic mission underpinning to me. It has, it has. Um, it, it, I, I think at times it's maybe has been as much of an encumbrance as an advantage, but because I, I obviously have some some interest in the permanent record and, mm. and trying and trying to at least come close to to uh, contributing as opposed to boulderizing something only for the sake of entertainment. And and that's a you know that's a, a razor's edge to walk because you're trying to serve two masters. And yeah. I, I think it's. I think it's raised the bar sometimes for being able to get certain things done or to or to gin up interest in a particular thing, um, because it really might interest me, but it doesn't necessarily conform to the obvious dictates of, you know, entertainment and commerciality and all that stuff. And 
it, it's often a question of trying to find those stories that at least intrinsically have some shape or some sets of values that, that, that would lend themselves to narrative and more conventional narrative. And there are great people, look, look at what Michael Lewis does, how he takes a subject and makes it narrative. Um, John Krakauer, there are journalists who are just really great at that. Yeah. And, and when, I, when I was at Rolling Stone, actually, I, um, I, 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 was, I was 20 years old, but I met uh, Joe Esther Haas was somebody who was there and actually had, a, had an ear for that even then long before he went into movies. Um, and, and ironically, uh, I didn't meet Cameron Crowe till a little bit after, but you know, somebody who had a similar bent about how to frame a journalistic narrative. So that was part of it, I guess. And, and the only other thing is that I know that there's no substitute for actually doing the work and doing the reading and going to the place and talking to the people and smelling the smells. And, and that has helped me, I think, give some more vividness to what might otherwise have seemed to be uh, drier or more, you know, a uh, little more academic or, or newsworthy or words other than, uh, you know, commercial narratives. Yeah, yeah, so it, it both informs the way you view the world and make your choices, uh, but also I would think it really must uh, uh, influence the way that you communicate and, and the way that you, uh, you know, prioritize and, and uh, uh, you know, as far as the subjects and the, the parts of the story that you emphasize. Yeah, uh, and, in, and even in process, even with the actors, I have found that a great way to create a, a bond and even to find, to sculpt a performance is to enlist that actor and to give them what they want because the great actors, they want to know the real stuff too. Yeah. They want to, you know, Denzel Washington wants to ride in a tank with the, the armored cavalry in a night maneuver at Fort Irwin so he knows what it is when he's playing that part. Or Leonardo DiCaprio wants to be in South Africa drinking Jägermeister with guys from the SADF. And, and that's part of what a journalist does too. And so you're sort of bring, and you will relate to this, I'm sure, but there is no better way than to get somebody who doesn't necessarily want to open up to open up if you bring along a fucking movie star. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, I mean I, I'm sitting here with Annette Benning talking to somebody for this, this woman from the CIA, CIA who right. wouldn't tell me anything. And all of a sudden she's like just spilling it all because there is, you know, some star of some movie that she liked. That's great. When in doubt, go with truth serum or movie stars. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. <laughs> I used to bring a blow dart with truth serum. That, yeah, that's, good. That's good. my best, but I think I, I'll try your way. Uh, uh, you know, in the journalistic approach, and you've directed seven films. I mean, Four, 13 or 14, do you? Oh, I mean, uh, oh, geez. How can I be that far off? Uh, I, I guess, uh, I shouldn't, I shouldn't go by what I read. I think it was my. I think it was my. I think it was Maya's fault. You know, who probably didn't prep <laughs> properly for this. Yeah, clearly. I mean, uh, I, Jeff, I gave you an abbreviated list. Uh, I, I should have specified that it was not exhaustive. This is one of those things that you do. Is uh, attorneys shouldn't ask questions that they don't know. They don't know the answer, answer to. And journalists shouldn't make declarations if they don't know the. <laughs> well, all I guess right. I'll make sure in, in future like briefs, I'll send you the whole IMDb. I apologize, Mr. Zwick. <laughs> oh, no, no, please. Um, well, but, uh, you know, some you've done historical films, uh, 
you know, writ large on the screen with uh, things like Last Samurai you wrote and directed. Uh, but then also with like something like Blood Diamond, that's that feels even more journalistic to me because it's yeah. of the moment. Um, yeah. You know, what's uh, what, do you ever get analysis paralysis though at that? At that uh, do you ever dig and dig and dig too much or have you got that? Yeah. Oh, God. It's so funny. Well, no, I, I wouldn't say it's analysis paralysis, but I know what you're saying. I mean, there's, I've wanted to write a lot about the, um, the increasing number of murders of environmental activists in uh, Honduras and Guatemala and the various projects in Brazil. It's, it's a terrible, terrible um, circumstance where they're really being murdered in great numbers. Um, and the more I've dug though, it's been hard to find a narrative that would conform itself to a movie because the dictates of a movie, meaning a narrative movie, not a documentary, um, you know, they, they're different. And yeah. so the, the more I've dug, the, the, the more lost I've become in trying to find a way to do it. So that's a for instance, but in Blood Diamond, I got, I don't know if I got lucky. Um, I, 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 well, I was lucky. You, you'll, you'll appreciate this if you want to hear a little bit of a tale. Um, sure. I, I was reading a lot about um, about West Africa, and I knew a certain amount. And I saw online uh, there was a movie called Cry Freetown, which was a documentary done by a guy named Soria Samura, a, jo a journalist, a West uh, from from um, uh, West Africa, um, in fact um, Liberia, who had been there during the attack of the RAF during the revolution, during that period. And he, what he did is he filmed all this film, he stowed away on a ship, got to England, got it to the BBC, and the BBC said, sorry, it's not up to broadcast quality. So he worked as a, making, clean, cleaning dishes in London, went back to um, Africa, did it again, because of course it was still going on, with a, bought a camera, did it again, went back there and made this documentary. Um, and when I just happened to see the thing in Google and I wrote him an email saying, gee, here's my check for, you know, $28 for this video. Um, somebody at that company recognized my name and said, listen, if you're interested in this, here's another tape. And it was done by this guy, Soria Samura, um, an African journalist whom I then contacted who eventually became a kind of Beatrice to me, to lead me into all of the stories about Sierra Leone and introduce me to people and ended up becoming a kind of consultant to me on the movie. Wow. And, and that was invaluable, as you can imagine. But sure. came, about, came about because I was doing the, the, the homework and, and that led me actually to a group called Global Witness, who was a campaigning group out of England who were really more responsible for the creation of the idea, the concept of, of conflict diamonds. And they too then became, you know, consultants with me. And then I met another woman who brought me, who, who had been married to a guy who formerly was part of De Beers. Wow. And okay. then she was able to hook me up with him and who was able to tell me things that otherwise I might not otherwise have found. And, and, and that was part of the process. It's fascinating the instinct in people uh, to share and to, to tell their story because you know, oh, yeah. it, it's always amazed me, you know, during the, I wrote for LA Times for 21 years and did like, you know, seven years covering Metro stuff and then seven years covering music and then seven years covering film. 
Um, and uh, at each in each of those stops, I was routinely surprised by the things that people would tell me. Uh, uh, you know, not always in their best interest, but there, there's that uh, that instinct in people, don't you think? I well, I mean, I had a wonderful teacher actually at AFI, a woman named Nina Fosh, who was an actress and a, a, a teacher, who said that everybody has a story if you're willing to to spend enough time. That you know, she once told a story about. Uh, taking a flight from someplace and having been seated next to the Maraschino Cherry King. <laughs> and he was he was fascinating about Maraschino cherries for about an hour. I don't, I'm not sure it would have been fascinating for an hour and 10 minutes, but <laughs> that hour, it was pretty interesting. And, 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 and I think, yes, you have to, you have to be willing to listen and, 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 and create some safe, active listening space where people feel comfortable and actually telling you their story, but they want to tell you, they want you to know. Yeah. Even, yeah. even people who've done terrible things want you to know. Yeah. Yeah. I guess that's even what I'm kind of getting at is, is the people that have done terrible things or the people that have done through incredibly hurtful things or great loss, mm -hmm. you know, or, or diminishment or being misunderstood mm -hmm. uh, and when they open up. It's uh, it's a fascinating thing. It, it, it always surprises me though, but uh, I guess at some point it should stop. Yeah, I mean, in terms of blood, in terms of blood diamond, what I was able to finally find were three points of view, which is to say, this man was looking for his son. Mm -hmm. This, um, uh, you know, uh, whatever he was, a soldier of fortune, was looking for a diamond, and this journalist was looking for a story. Mm. And th those three points um, began to intertwine and spin and create, you know, the kind of uh, stuff that you need to tell stories. Um, and they were, they inhabited, those points of view were inhabited in the reality of those characters. They weren't emblematic, but they were, they had a, 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 a goal. And those goals were at times conflictual and at times were in concordance. And, and that helped. I, there was one other thing that, that I did, which I don't know if you ever do, but sometimes uh, there's a little, a single sentence or a metaphor that that occurs to you, and this was when I was realizing finally that the child is the diamond, mm. and I wrote that on a little post-it and I put it on my laptop, and and that really helped me understand, in a kind of John Houston way, if you yeah. will, how yeah. that was a movie. That's it, really it, because they, you know, the diamond, they were all looking for the diamond. The diamond was a story. The diamond was a diamond. The diamond was a kid. Yeah. Yeah. That's really good. Yeah. It, it, it's, it's, I, I've had similar things where there's this moment where, it, you know, you just get this clarity about it and, and it's always simple. Uh, but I guess it's not mm -hmm. really simple. It's elemental. Like, uh, you're, you're lucky. You're lucky if it's simple, simpler right. element. Yeah. Yeah. I had one. It's, it felt like, um, I had this one story I did uh, real quickly that it, it had so many things to it that it, it, I, 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 used to, I was thinking of it like an ice cream cone and you could put scoops on it and you can only fit so many scoops and then you start to lose it, you know, and, and, and I was writing it like that. I kept trying to put something above everything and, oh. and it just was out of control. Well, boy, I mean, I, we, we worked on, other, I made a movie called Defiance and we worked on that yeah. movie for... Uh, the, it was written by a, a very good friend of mine and I had supervised him, but he had written it and, and, and after, it was 10 years. 
And, and he, what he had written was the true story of these people in the forest who had survived for three years going through hell, but to survive. Yeah. And in order to write that story, everything had been reduced because there's a limit as to how much a movie can handle, like a newspaper article, anything else. And one day, literally nine years later, I was uh, uh, cross-country skiing in, in deep snow in Colorado and my binding broke and it was getting dark and I wasn't that far from home. I, I probably could have made it, you know, but I, I took off my gloves and my hands started to freeze and I tried to fix the binding. And all of a sudden I was seized with this fear and this, this weird anxiety about, oh God. Yeah. Suddenly I realized if I could make that movie about what it felt like to be in that forest for the first time yeah. with your fingers freezing and what do you do? And, and what I went back and literally rewrote that movie in 10 days to be about the period of September through March when they got through one winter. Yeah. And suddenly by compressing it and making it much more simple, I was able to tell that story and take two scoops off the ice cream cone and make it only about one. Yeah. Yet it resonated outward to be a, a bigger story. That's amazing. That's amazing. Yeah, I the the one I had I I, I was at this uh, I was at a crack house in Santa Ana. Okay. Uh, it was about uh, five a.m. on a Tuesday, uh, and there were five cops kicking in the door, and I was hiding behind a tree with my notebook and my press pass, both of which I was assured were bulletproof. Right. Um, sure. And the cop that was leading the way. Uh, was a woman and she was about five foot three, five foot four. And I kind of, this is 1993. Uh, and St. Anne at that time had um, the second fewest women on its force of any of the top 60 cities in America. Only The only city that had fewer women was Buffalo, New York. Um, so I saw this woman and she had a gang tattoo on her wrist and she was leading the way through the door. So uh, after they, they were serving a warrant, a murder warrant. Um, and after they, uh, it was a ride along, obviously. Uh, after everything calmed down, I sought her out in one, and I saw this gang tattoo on her hand and realized it was a local gang, not only a local gang, the biggest gang. And that she had probably grown up just from a few blocks from there. Uh, and she's one of the only two women on the force. And she, I mean, that's a lot of great stuff. Like, to, you know, so I was found her compelling. And as I got to know her story over the, the next few weeks, uh, she had been a battered wife. She had been a welfare mother single mom, um, her husband had beat her. One time he punched one of the kids, almost killed the kids. She ran him over with a car, a, husband, <laughs> a late model Buick. Uh, and uh, then at age 20, it was disowned by her father because wouldn't speak to her for years because she was pregnant out of wedlock, got married at like 17. Um, and then at age 27 with her husband in prison, she put herself through the police academy. Uh, no one would sponsor her. So like, if you saw like, um, a row of all the cadets, there were like 300 cadets. They all have the patch of the agency that is sponsoring them. There's one sleeve that's black that has no patch and it's hers. And uh, so she's telling me all this, I'm like, this is amazing. And then uh, the final uh, exam is an obstacle course. And she has to get over a wall. Uh, the night before the final, uh, she's never been able to get over the wall. It's really hard for a woman physiologically mm -hmm. to get over an eight foot uh, cinder block wall. She finally got over, sprained her ankle landing. Next day, ankle taped up, gets over the wall for just the second time in her life, 
She graduates third in the class and her father, who hasn't talked to her in, in a decade, steps out of the crowd, goes up, takes the badge and puts it on her himself. Whoa, there you go. And the first day on the job, this is almost over, I promise. First day on the job, um, her LT says, follow me after morning briefing. Uh, they go into a side room. He says, you belong in the back of a police car, not the front. Uh, your job here will be over before mine. We've never had this conversation. <laughs> you know, and wow. it just goes from there. So wow. when I was writing this, I was, these all these different scoops. Do I start when she's a kid? Do I start when she's a cop? Do I start with the, the gang murder she witnessed, the gang murder that almost happened to her? Um, and I was reading, um, it was around the time um, uh, I was reading storybooks to my niece. <laughs> and uh, the language of them was so simple. Uh, and I realized that that's what my problem was, is that the story I just kept adding all these pyrotechnics to the top and the vividness. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and then finally, I realized that I, I needed to have the authority to write what the story really was, that it was like a fairy tale in its simplicity. And I ended up being like the shortest lead I ever had. That's um, great. Yeah, Mona Ruiz carries the weight of two badges, period. Uh, one is the Silver Shield of Santa Ana Police Department. The other is the gang tattoo that coils down the wrist of her shooting hand. One marks her as a protector on the streets. The other is a predator. She's walked in both worlds. She's welcome in neither. This is her story. That's great. I mean, there's nothing, you know, it was a big moment for me as a writer. Songwriters are great at that. Um, Dylan, in his use of words and simple words and simple phrases, um, there's, I actually heard a Leonard Cohen song that I loved recently, The Sisters of Mercy. Yeah. Um, and those words, when you listen to them, they're, they're just Anglo-Saxon simple words that are put together in this particular way as to be so meaningful. You know, the Sisters of Mercy, they are not departed or gone. They were waiting for me when I thought that I could not go on. And it just this kind of almost Poe-like Americana, um, and it's like the lead of a story. Exactly. It, it, it's it's compressed. It, it it has it it radiates outward to mean so much more. And that's by the way, that's the best films and the best filmmakers, at least traditionally, are that. Yeah, it's I, really fascinating. I, I thought of I mean, and that has to do with the genre too. You know, Glory is yes, it's an historical film, but it's really like a nineteen forty two buddy movie about these plucky guys have to get together and get to form a unit and take that hill. Yeah, the kid and, from and, Brooklyn. Uh, yeah, the, the kid from Brooklyn, and, and there's the, the smart ass from, and then the Southern cracker, and he doesn't like the black kid and, you know, but <laughs> but that's, it's those tropes are eternal yeah. in some way. And, and that's another way to actually think about more complex stories that have political and social resonances to at least find certain handles or handholds in them to make them more accessible. Yeah, and you know, as you were describing, um, you know, the experience of, of uh, the skiing and, and, and how that mm -hmm. distilled it for you, uh, it kind of reminded me of uh, something that uh, an actor told me, uh, Tom Hiddleston, a great actor, uh, he was doing, um, War Horse with Spielberg, and there's a scene where there's these machine guns that are going to be used for, in combat for the first time, and the, the soldiers are on horseback, and he's confident, he's leading his men toward victory, and then they see these guns, and they don't know what they are, they haven't seen anything like this before, and then everything, I mean, they're, they're ripped to shreds, and that moment when he makes this realization or this observation, um, 
Hiddleston, he was trying to modulate his horror and terror and all those things. And Spielberg uh, came to him and said, I want you to be at that moment, a five-year-old that doesn't know what's next. Not scared, just confused and bewildered and, and suddenly not in control. Um, and it was such a, and I'm not doing it justice, but it's, it was such a simple way to get into something that could be overlayered and complex. And it's that kind of clarity that, that you were discussing with that. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, that's th even that kind of direction to an actor. If you can find a metaphor or if you can find um, an animal uh, analogy or there are right. ways that, that, that it, it does clarify things and I think makes their job easier rather than it makes it makes it makes it visceral rather than intellectual. Yeah. So with Glory, which uh, 30th anniversary um, this past year, I believe. Yeah. Um, got that one. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, it's uh, for you as a filmmaker at that point. I mean, uh, it was the biggest project that you had ever taken on by far. And, and you know, you're a guy from Chicago. You're down, uh, found yourself down in, in Savannah, uh, working with an, an, a phenomenal cast uh, that, you know, I mean, Morgan Freeman was well known to everybody. Paris, uh, Bueller had just made Matthew Broderick, uh, mm -hmm. you know, put him on the map in a lot of ways. Denzel Washington obviously was going to get an Oscar for this. Uh, what was the biggest challenge for you with communicating with that cast and and, and just getting your arms around it at that point? Um, you know, I, I had been through college in the, the late 60s and early 70s at a time in which there was a, a very divisive um, spirit that had gone into the relationship between, um, you know, black politics and 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 liberal politics, hmm. yeah. and and I had some um, anxiety about the fact that that my um, uh, cultural appropriation of this story might somehow be. Uh, problematic. Sure. And uh, I was also getting great pressure from the studio to really create it into uh, essentially a white savior narrative, which is to say the Robert Gould Shaw story. And they kept making me try to write more and more scenes about him and his background at Brook Farm and the abolitionist community and him, uh, Harriet Beecher Stowe and on and on and on. And in fact, I had to write them. And they insisted because Matthew Broderick was the reason they made this movie. Um, Ferris Bueller, not an obvious choice, but a commercial choice for them. Um, and I did it, uh, but what I discovered as I began to work with those guys that you're describing, and, I, and, and I'll include Andre Brower and Jimmy Kennedy too, sure. um, was when we went into rehearsal, we went into a real period of rehearsal to try to find a voice for the movie because We'd read oral histories, but nobody really knew quite what that sounded like. Nobody knew what a shout was when they prayed. No, you know, it was a. It had to be created in some way as this commonality. And what I discovered is that their willingness and openness and good humor to find these things and to hear these voices, which were the voices of their parents and grandparents and even beyond was so available to them yeah. 
And it was not, and, and, and they approached it in this extraordinary goodwill, not unlike the way that I would imitate my grandfather in the shtetl back in Poland, though I did not necessarily ever, I was never back there. I somehow had some feeling of connection to it. Sure. And, and, as the, and the more I heard and the more that I saw that these guys were in some sort of rapture that they were representing, that, 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 that it was happening in front of me. And, and I knew that that's where the story of the movie was, that I began to write more and more of that and I, they did indeed force me to shoot those scenes, the early scenes, almost in more than a real, a real and a half of film before they even meet. And I looked at it, even as I was shot it. And when I did the first cut and before I showed it to the studio, I just dropped it. Yeah. And they were horrified, except I previewed it. And the movie played so well because all I needed was to see Matthew Broderick on that field at Antietam, clearly ill fit for that job. He meets Morgan Freeman, who's a grave digger and the story begins. And you realize that the story is in that tent and it's in the relationship between the two of them. And this is a long way of saying that they gave me that movie. Yeah. The smartest thing I ever could have done was to humble myself and to allow that thing to happen that was happening in front of me. Yeah, and when, way, yeah. and when, that, when that happens to a movie, when a movie tells you what it wants to be, it's such a beautiful thing. And, and you, if you're open, and I know it at a certain point in my career, I wouldn't have been, but you just are open to the improvisation of life happening in front of you, as opposed to what you might've anticipated or try to over-determine you're taking away a, a very essential element of what can happen in front of a camera um, with brilliant, as those people are, uh, with brilliant performers. And, and it's, again, it goes, it's journalistic. It's being available to find the story that presents itself, not the one that you wrote before you got to the scene. Oh man, that is, that is so right. That is it, exactly. And, you know, and, and because, and this is a sad comment, a little bit about movies now with pre-visualization and CG where you are obliged to, and I, I've resisted to a great degree still, but I've still done have to do, do a bunch, that, that I cannot, I, I've learned that whatever imagination I have is beggared by the thing that I will see in front of me that I could understand and learn from as it's happening and then shape. Yeah. And, and, and that that's how the camera sees and, and that there are, the idea that everything has to be predetermined, it becomes animation, even if it's with live actors. And I think that's why it feels the way it does and why it often feels so lifeless and so far, farther even away from the theater that, you know, movies are one step away from live theater already. And then pre-visualized movies are then two steps away. And I think that accounts for a certain lifelessness. Yeah, I think you're right. I think that there's, uh, there's a hollow uh, hollow or contrived kind of feeling uh, too often. You know, I saw that you you said something to the Washington Post uh, not uh -oh. that long ago. Uh oh, uh oh, <laughs> no, it's nothing. I don't think uh, uh, about uh, the nature of uh, uh, episodic storytelling these days. Ah, uh, yeah. Does that ring a bell? Yeah, yeah. I, I have I have thoughts on it. That's for sure. Because I'm fascinated because I think I mean you know. 
well, the tradition, if, to oversimplify, if I understand right, that a lot of people would say film is about story and TV is about character. You know, uh, mm -hmm. film uh, character should start at one place and finish in another. TV, uh, people love the character that doesn't change while the world changes around them. You know, mm -hmm. the Archie Bunker thing. Um, but that seems to be changing, you know, uh, and, and we have this sort of uh, with the with Netflix and Hulu and, and uh, Disney Plus and et cetera. Um, it's changed the, the the rhythms and it's changed oh, yeah. the, the paradigm in a way. Yeah, I would use, I mean, the word that occurred to me to use was Dickensian in terms of how he used to have to write in that episodic way, right. um, leaving the cliffhanger so that people would buy the newspaper the next day or week or whenever that edition would come out. Um, that the 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 uh, goal, finally, I believe, um, because it's it's the goal of the marketer and the demographer and the and the and the ratings, whatever it is, the, the, the subscription, whatever that is, that the goal is to make you anxious and to leave you um, needing to then see the next thing, so that will continue your participation in that um, subscription as opposed to the goal of drama, which had always been catharsis, some kind of, you know, closure and, and experience and denouement, which made it a complete and rounded experience and a well-made experience. And I, even when I, it was even last night, I was actually watching something and what's, what they've done now, you'll notice, is that the minute the show ends, they'll give you like a five second countdown before the next episode begins, so as to encourage that kind of binging and that lack of experience of a thing when it ends, but rather make it part of a continuing thing. Sure. So what they're doing to your experience is preying upon a kind of anxiety of plot, of story and plot, rather than the ideational, emotional experience of what the real beauty of narrative can be, which is uh, the Greek word, and I'll be pretentious, is peripatia, of recognition, of, of a thing that happens to you, identification. And you've had an experience. And as you recall, when movies were what they once were in the culture, it would end. It was an ephemeral experience. There was no hope to ever see it again unless it showed up on The Late Show. You saw it that night right. and you would talk about it and you would experience it with your friends and or maybe you'd go see it again once, but that was it. And so your investment was so deep and complete, but the investment's very different now. The whole nature of the experience is different now. Yeah, it's almost like real life now because it just keeps going. Uh, and that's also, I think, will account for how it finally has diminished in our hierarchy of experience, why others have you know rivaled it or exceeded it? Yeah. It's interesting that they would just make. It's interesting that it's uh, the TV and film ended up being so different in the first place. I suppose it's just the nature of uh, having commercial interruptions in the short form uh, drove it toward yep. character. You know. Do you do you mind if I cut in, Jeff? Please, uh, <laughs> as the producer. Yeah. Um, just because um, during college I did a lot with Shakespeare and dramatic theory and I'm really interested in what you said about catharsis and how you define it um, because as it as it happens in Aristotle there's lots of hot debates about what it actually means and so I was wondering um, given your preference for the cathartic kind of terminal media experience versus the continuing cliffhanger and 
you need your next fix type of setup. Why do you think catharsis is, is valuable for us? Well, I mean, I, I think we go to uh, narrative because narrative is narrative is the mother's milk by which we confront the world. I mean, the first narrative is the is you know is the mother's breast and 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 it's the it is the thing that organizes our experience that takes the chaos of life and begins to give us some kind of um, comfort in the fact that it has become ordered in some way. And I think that when we weep in the movies or when we feel in the movies, it is ourselves that we are seeing. We're looking at those characters, but we are seeing in them aspects of ourselves that are either hidden or identifying or, or, or very personal. And that I think that a personal experience is, it is, it's necessary in a personal experience to have the resonance continue after. I think the nature of, of, of a theatrical experience happens to you in the theater, but I think it happens to you as you sit there afterwards and as you leave the theater and that night, I think that it's a continuing experience because if a mirror has been held up to you, it's hard to see it right away, but you, you, are, you are seeing it, but it's going into this place, a kind of um, unconscious place. And I think when you gorge or when you invest in plot rather than identification, then something is lost. And I, and, and, and I, I think that's, um, and you talk about Shakespeare, that the brilliance was his um, embrace of the contradictions of the human that injection of that ambiguity and ambivalence and all those things that those characters possessed that no characters had had before that allowed us to identify. And I think there's something about uh, a very a, a very wise uh, uh, writer once said to me, he said, you know, plot is the thing that the burglar throws over the wall to distract the dogs while he climbs over to steal the jewels, which are the characters. Oh, and, wow. and and I think that I think you're just not allowed to, um, you know, the catharsis. I think probably goes back to the Greek um, more than just Shakespeare, yeah. and, and 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 it's those moments of you know Oedipus realizing what he has done, how he has defiled this, and 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 I think that that that. Um, Absent those moments, I don't think we're getting a true theatrical experience, I guess is what I would say. Yeah, it's, it's in a way, it seems to me like, as you're saying that, uh, like story, we also have a hunger for uh, the world around us to have meaning. Mm -hmm. uh, we want things to have meaning. We don't want the world, yes. everything to be just random. So to me, it feels like story, um, it satisfies the need that there's meaning. Um, and then catharsis is the recognition that we understand it. Like, cause that's the other thing is we want understanding of that meaning. We want there to be- And, and even though that may be elusive, I mean, that first guy who sat by the fire in the, in the, in the, in the cave and yeah. tried to explain why the saber-toothed tiger had come and stolen that child away that day 
or what that eclipse meant and you know that people they, they did they did need that and by the way part of that is a sop you know part of that is just a a, a kind of um even false comfort right um because re religion is told in narratives too sure and 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 so are commercials uh, you know, everything is is meant to to give you comfort in a particular way, and and narrative does do that. It 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 is a kind of a but but we need that ministry. We need comfort in in the confused and chaotic world. Sure, that's, that's the role of art, I think, and certainly narrative art. I've always thought there should be a museum of story, like uh, uh. <laughs> you know, like to look at the way that people have framed history and framed everything you're talking about i mean everything is story every uh, that's how we communicate we pass on our our lessons and pass on our lineage and all those and, and and by the way this isn't to take away from some amazing work that's being done right in 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 short in 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 in, in uh streaming for service i mean the, you know i thought that some of that work in i may destroy you for instance was like taking new leaps in terms of you know using the fragmented experience and trying to show what trauma meant and how it was experienced. I mean, there's great stuff, yeah. but by and large, less. And it's, 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 it's a different, you're, you're right. I hadn't really thought about this, but it feels like I, Peaky Blinders. I got on a Peaky Blinders mm -hmm. uh, uh, run and I just loved it. Uh, but at the end of it all, I felt it makes you feel jangly. Like it, yeah. it, the yeah. deal's not done. Like, I, I feel like a, you know, it's like you're on a train and you're watching and you're, you're seeing another train go by and you're kind of, you just, it, you never really get a good look at it. You know, it feels yeah, like it's, it's- Yeah, it's, it's, do you ever, and you start to find yourself going, uh, touching and seeing where you are in the timeline of the, yeah. of the film and you're on your computer and it's, it's druggy. It, yeah, exactly. it, it, it's, yeah. a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a little closer to cocaine than it is to, to pot. I, I'm dope sick for Peaky Blinders. I, 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 you know, and I don't know what to do with myself. You know, uh, it's it's just it's it's a uh, it's a strange world. Um, you're a Chicago guy. I uh, am. Uh, some of my favorite filmmakers are Chicago guys: Michael Mann, uh, oh. John Hughes. Uh, it's so many uh, terrific. I, I had about three more I could think of, but well, I, I was I'm I'm coming. I was to you lucky. Chicago. In the, um, oh yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah, uh, uh, Breakfast Club was actually filmed in my mom's, it was in a closed high school. Uh, yeah. Main West, I think, in, in her yeah, town Maine, while she yeah, was right. growing up Maine, there, yeah. That's what it displays, I think, is where that is, right? Uh, Park Ridge, yeah. Park Ridge, okay. Yeah, no, I mean, I was lucky enough also, um, all the guys from Steppenwolf um, were my pals. Um, and so we've been friends out here and all worked together in different ways. Uh, yeah, it was a kind of a hotbed for a lot of us. I, I, I'm not entirely sure why. I think because uh, those guys, they did it in a basement in Highland Park in, 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 uh, and then Jeff Perry's house. And I, I it was- Yeah, for, if our audience doesn't know, Steppenwolf is a, is a well-known dramatic theater here yeah. in Chicago. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> and, and I just read, and I just read uh, Mark Harris's my book on Mike Nichols. And when you read about Nichols in May and you read about Paul Sills and the Compass Players and, 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 and there was a, there was an opportunity to experiment without the scrutiny and without the high stakes, I think, of New York for a lot of people. And that was part of it, I think, um, at least for a lot of us. Yeah, but Chicago it, it, is a wonderful theater town. Oh yeah, 
it's where it's where a lot of um, New York productions sometimes get started. They they do yeah. it in trial runs here. You bet. Yeah, it's uh. It, what, when you look at your work, uh, do you see no, anything? I try not to, but go ahead. <laughs> yes. <laughs> when you when you contemplate your work, do you do you see anything in it that you would say? That's Chicago, or, or how does the place that you grew up and live echo in your work, I guess? Well, I mean, look, the first the first movie I did was set in Chicago, and it was based on a David Mamet play, so that's hard to get away from. That is his voice, or that part of his voice that we used in the movie, or the sets that we shot in Wrigley Field, and, and I was on, you know, Rush Street. I mean, a lot of that was, and the L, we shot on the L. I mean, a lot of it was that, that experience, so that was easy, I think, to talk about. I think, I actually think, some of the stuff that that thirty something is about, yeah. and, and the TV stuff and my so-called life, I think those things are closer to the voices that I knew in high school or in uh, even among my friends who were from there. Uh, Ken Olin, in fact, was uh, his family was from there. I, I don't know. There were there were just a lot of. Uh, I just heard the, the suburban nature of those uh, anxieties and things uh, reflected my experience, I think, in a way that was particular. For you, what's the, what's the best day? Like, uh, because you've done so much in TV and so much in, in film uh, and, and, and different variations within that range, um, but what, which, which suits your sensibilities more or your rhythms more? Oh, definitely. When I'm when I'm making a movie, I wish I were sitting on a stage and shooting a TV show. And when I'm making a TV show, I can't stand it and want to get out and be out someplace in the wet rain making a movie. So I'm, you're a journalist. Nothing's ever satisfied. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> okay, yeah. I get that. That makes perfect sense. Um, you know, the actors you worked with, uh, just absolutely phenomenal. If you in making a list, it's 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 actually dizzying to look at all the the amazing people that you put on the screen and often in some of their best or some of their really shining moments. Um, maybe talk about one or two of the actors that, you know, like for instance, like Denzel, I mean, you've done multiple projects with him uh, and seen him just turn into a titan of, of Hollywood. Um, what, I mean, what's that been like it's for your hard to talk. It's hard to talk about, look, all these people, the, 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 um, the, 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 blessing and the bounty of working with these people who are geniuses and are willing to consider you you their peer or to, to presume to give them direction is pretty amazing and I continue to be amazed by it. I, I never dreamed that I would be able to be in that situation um, and it continues to be that way still. Um, and there's there's the awe that one feels for the weird inexplicable charisma of, of brilliant actors. Um, yeah. And, and the challenge of working with them, some of them, because their personalities are extreme and, and very reactive and, you know. Um, but, you know, you, you mentioned Denzel. That's an obvious one. I, I, I can't look at any career in the last 50 years, the aggregate of which comes close to, to do, you know, performance by performance, one after the other. Uh, and when you think about the fact that he that he really and he's by the way fucking funny and one of the funniest people that i know that he's never really done a comedy really 
Right. And because a comedy is a romantic comedy and that becomes, an, it, for a long time, that would be an interracial comedy. Or if it was with a black woman, it would then have been, have been a black movie at a time when they weren't making those. And so he's had that career without even making a comedy. Think about that for a moment. Um, and uh, he's- uh, I think he's been in Much Ado About Nothing. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. But again, that's a comedy set during war. So you know the, the funniest not, thing about that movie is Keanu Reeves. And 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 I would not I would not necessarily say that with the exception of the Ken Branagh subplot there that there were a lot of laughs. Um well Keanu Reeves accent, uh, I think. Anyway, but my point is there 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 was I don't think I've shot one foot of film with him that I couldn't have used in the movie and moved on and you know, when you go to take two and take three, it's only because you're choosing between, um, uh, you know, the finest uh, vintage of, of, of the three finest vintages of Burgundy and which do you like better, but they're all brilliant and, and unique. He's just possessed of this capability of presence, of participating in the being, not the seeming of a thing where he inhabits it completely and 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 I could tell story after story about him but I won't bore you and some of them I've actually told a couple times and a friend of mine said I've just become that kind of you know really boring old fart who's starting to tell war stories so I'm going to avoid that about Denzel but there are many um and then there's and, and there there are so many others too I mean I um uh you know I I, I watched uh you know uh, Sean Penn become this autistic child in front of my eyes. I, I saw, um, uh, you know, um, DiCaprio would stay in character and, and he would go into these places and people would just not recognize him because he would just become this other thing. Huh. Um, or uh, I remember, you know, Matt Damon working his very first day in Courage Under Fire opposite Denzel and and we did Matt's part of the coverage, and and as the camera was turning around, Denzel came up and he said, "Who the fuck is that?" <laughs> you know, you see these things happening in front of you. You know, Claire Danes was thirteen and a half when I first met her, and I met her with her parents, and it was clear already who was driving the train. Yeah, it was her. Um. And, and so there have been a lot, I mean, just a lot and a lot of them. I mean, I, 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 uh, I had one, one memory of directing a scene that was Anthony Hopkins, Aidan Quinn and Brad Pitt in one scene. And they had come from as three divergent backgrounds as you could ever imagine, literally, you know, the National Theater, the Organ Remains Theater in Chicago and a bowling alley in Missouri. You know, right. and yet trying to um, see how to find the common voice between those three people was amazing. Um, but the experiences, frankly, are not just actors. I, 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 I you know, I worked with Tom Stoppard. Sure. Uh, uh, I worked with uh, with John Logan or Steve Knight. You're talking Peaky Blinders. I've done two movies with Steve Knight. That's just as privileging, as much of a privilege as you know, working with the actors because that's just, it's just thrilling.
or Shelby Foot, or, or you know, uh, or Shelby Foot sitting next to me as I was going through the the draft of I'm writing of Glory. There is this man who I've read everything since I was 12 years old of the history of the Civil War, and right. he's you know talking to me like I'm on a Ken Burns documentary. It's like going to Lincoln Memorial and he just starts talking to you. Like yeah. it's, a, <laughs> it's crazy. Yeah, that's yeah. fantastic. Um, and it, as far as you know, a lot of directors don't see other directors direct. You know, uh, with your producing career, I'm sure you have. But um, how, tell me a little bit about that because that's, that's really interesting. That, that's interesting. I mean, I I think the person when I when we did thirty something, we had a lot of directors come in, and I would learn something from them. I think when I produced you know, traffic watching Soderbergh work, that was revelatory because he's very different. And I know I learned a lot watching that um, or, or he observed how, how the biorhythm of a director affects the performances in this kind of weird unspoken way. His, un, his, his offhanded, very nonchalant, very underplayed thing communicates itself to the actors in this way that you, you feel it in all of his movies. Um, uh, it is a cool and a, a kind of um, an irony uh, in it. Uh, but um, the other thing about directors is that we meet, you know, at, at, a, at a party or a dinner or something, we don't really know each other very well. We'll often call each other to like get the scoop on is this person, do they, is life too short to work with this actor? You know, what's this DP like? I've had a lot of calls from people I didn't know and I've called a lot of people I didn't know and everyone has been generous in both directions. Oh, but cool. the truth is, but the truth is, it's a, when I worked in Japan, the, I realized that the weirdness that one feels about Japan is because it's an island nation and it was alone away from the world for so many hundred years that they became you know, oddly, you know, strange, there's a strangeness. And a director never, you know, these actors have become directors, they've sampled this director and this director and this director, but someone who's been a pure director has had to sort of invent their universe themselves. Yeah. So that's why a lot of us are sort of weird and you've developed these <laughs> odd techniques without the benefit of great exposure to other versions of it. Yeah. And, and, and I think that's, um, I think that's I think that's why. It's it's an interesting thing because you don't really usually see that. There's usually sort of a other careers have like an apprenticeship sort of format yeah. or 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 just a, a parallel working observational stuff. But directors, you're it's like you're leading an army on an invasion of an idea, and you're going to do it here, and everybody else is going to do theirs there, and you don't really get to watch. Yes, uh, and and on the set. Everybody on that set probably has done more film than you have, no matter how many movies you've made. The crew has made 10 more because they worked all the time and you work every two years. Right. And, and you're saying, or there's some you know, idiot at the prow of the ship going, I know the way, follow me, right this way. And the truth is he doesn't know, right. he's guessing, but they don't want that gig. Yeah. They could. But they, what they want to do is do their job brilliantly and with great humor, and, and yet they want to grumble about the asshole who's up there telling them what to do right. um, because he's odd and, 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 and he's in pursuit of this. It's, it's not a ship that's looking for spices and gold. It's looking in pursuit of a story. Yeah. What is that? And how do you find that? 
Where do you go? What direction do you go to get there? It's mysterious. There's no map. In his head, he's got a map. If you hope the script is a map. Yeah. And uh, and you just hope the ship doesn't sink. I mean, that's the yeah. other thing. You, you just definitely yeah. don't want to, if you feel yourself in the water, something's gone wrong with the movie. <laughs> something's gone wrong. What about, What's the most arduous filmmaking experience you had? Just either just physically grueling or, or, you know, by your own measure but uh well i mean i i think i think last samurai was because we were on three continents 120 shooting days uh you know a lot of stunts and fighting and people being put at risk you know yeah. with horses and 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 actual you know swords swinging by people's heads and and you have to remember that's there's that was before cg yeah. there's there's like, like no seat, a couple of little succensions in that movie. That's it. So it was, it was, it wasn't a movie. It was a lifestyle. It was, and back and forth, back and forth to Japan to do the research, and then to New Zealand to scout, and then to America. It was, and and to to come to understand as best I could a culture that was not my own, to find the people who could be the interlocutors of it for me to have. You know, translators, but also trying to intuit my own understanding of what a performance felt like, even if I didn't know, you know, the literal meaning or words. It was it was sort of like silent movie directing at times. Oh, that's interesting. I think that that probably was the hardest. I mean, Defiance was very hard because we were there in the snow in the winter and it was horrible and cold. Yes. But this was this was maybe harder. That's amazing. And Todd Cruz is a force of nature. I mean, just to be around the guy, like uh, his <laughs> full time yeah. job. Yeah, it's like exhausting. It's, I, I don't mean that's not a slight to him. It's, it's just for truth. I mean, it's just very intense, very intense and very focused um, and, and joyous, by the way, yeah. full of full of, I mean, you know, every, every, there'll be horrible things going on and, you know, and rain and you're behind whatever. And yeah, I mean, he's the kind of person comes up to you and he says, you know, we're going to, you know what we get to do today? Yeah. Say what? We get to make a movie. It's like, yeah. right, <laughs> you know. Okay, here we go. That's the craziest thing. Like I, uh, my mentor at the Times uh, for a long time was Robert Hilbert, uh, the music critic. Uh, sure, I know you know the name. Yeah, and uh, he started his job in 1969, which was the year I was born. So he, he was a music critic since 69 up through like 2005. Um, and I remember the first time we went to a concert. Uh, we went to a concert together. In, in Anaheim, it was the Rolling Stones, and it was okay. Brian. Yeah, yeah. And Brian Adams opened, and uh, we sat down in our seats, and Brian Adams started his first song, and Bob goes, "I gotta get out of here." I go, "What? Like, I gotta get out of here. Come on, let's go." And I go, "Where are we going?" I, and I follow him, and he's like, "I can't listen to that," <laughs> which I thought was kind of funny. Uh, <laughs> he's like, We're not, I'm, "The reviews about the Stones. I don't need to see this." Uh, and we proceeded to walk. This is the Anaheim Arrowhead Pond uh, uh, Arena. And we walked on the concourse just around and around and it took laps because he had so much energy and he was wow. so excited. And I said, Bob, have you not seen the Rolling Stones before? And of course he has. Uh, and he's like, no, I, I've seen it many, many times. Like, yeah, how, how many times, Bob? And he's like, uh, I started doing that. Uh, uh, maybe 62 times, 63 times. <laughs> and I said, and you still care if they open would start me up? I mean, like you, and he's like, pow. And he like pats me on the chest. It's the stones. And I realized in that moment that his greatest attribute 
was his sense of wonder and his his, yeah. his stamina for the next thing. That's beautiful because, by the way, if 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 I started telling stories when I was twelve, the the more I can find that same kid who takes you know joy and and wonder in the experience, I know that that. I'm sleepless. I, I, I'm not insomniac, but I, I have trouble sleeping often. And it's mostly because I am excited about what I get to do the next day. Yeah. I, I've never, I've never woken up and said, Oh fuck, I've got to go to work. Wow. Well, that's a great thing. That's a yeah. pretty great thing. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I think we'll stop right there. Then. I think that's okay. too beautiful. That's so lovely. I could have never asked anything after that. Good. Well, listen, that was really, this was fun. Uh, it's, it's fun to take the time and to get somebody who really is, is asking good questions. So thank you. Well, thank you. And, Thanks again. And, and you too, Maya. Thank you. Thank you so much. Great. Right. A pleasure. Thanks again. Take care. All right. All right, Jeff. Really be well. Cheers. Thank you. So you just heard from Ed Zwick in conversation with Jeff Boucher on the art of storytelling and movie making um, and how they intersect and intertwine across different mediums, media. Good. Yes, that's right. Uh, what a, what an amazing guy. Uh, I just really like the way that, uh, I know it sounds funny, but I really like the way he communicates. I like the way that uh, he holds himself in a conversation and, uh, you know, uh, he's a really great listener. And, and that's one of the things I love about journalists is that they're uh, either incredibly persistent we're very good listeners. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I like that. Yeah. Interestingly, I know in the intro, you described him as one of the smartest people working in Hollywood, which is something similar to what you said with our last guest, Nicholas Meyer. And mm -hmm. going off what Zwick said about different creators' rhythms or ticks, I forget how he phrased that, but how would you characterize these past two creators who? share this same general rank in the Jeff Boucher mind space of <laughs> smart, erudite, intelligent, yeah. cerebral directors. Yeah, they, they rank really highly. Um, um, they, and they have a different, they, uh, they bring something very different with them. Um, and, but I've never been on either of their sets. You know, I've mm -hmm. never seen them direct in person, uh, which I really would love to because it, it's re really revealing. Um, because I found there's like there's about five different types of directors, you know, like some of them are like military commanders, some of them are like novelists, some of them are like painters, some of them are like uh, logistical, uh, almost producer types, some of them are, um, you know, just uh, naturals. They're like all, uh, uh, a combination of all, which would be like Spielberg, you know, it's like just everything you can be as far as like checking off boxes. Um, so I haven't seen these guys direct, uh, but as far as the way they, what they bring to projects and to, to, you know, just anything that they work on, you know, uh, the, the journalistic background is quick. Uh, and, and Nick Meyer has a much more uh, literary background, a much more sort of uh, academic and, uh, you know, he's much more of a man of uh, letters. Um, uh, well, I mean, they both, they both are, but they, uh, one is more based, uh, one's more library, one's more newsroom, you know. Yeah, that reminds me of, there's a famous Keats poem that talks about the Mermaid Tavern, uh, which was the tavern, allegedly, 
in Elizabethan London where all the dramatists and poets would commune together. And this poem tells the story of an epic drinking debate session between William Shakespeare and Ben Jonson. All of this hypothetical and sure. more in the realm of folklore than anyone can actually prove it happened. Even um, and I think Keats compares them of being equal intelligence, but of different kinds where Shakespeare he compares to a light frigate darting around in the water and Johnson as he's citing these classical texts mm. and marshalling his Greek and Latin and um, antique learning. He's more of a steady barge that's plowing along and has an idea where it's going and takes a long time to get there. So I'm not mm. sure that's how you'd qualify Meyer and Zick, but Zwick, but yeah no that's interesting i mean uh, it is it is kind of like carrying a library in your head versus carrying a newsroom yeah yeah absolutely absolutely and uh i like the 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 idea of uh someone it's almost like a fighting style too it's like the episode of game of thrones where you see pedro pascal's character who's super super nimble and fast and, mm -hmm. and uh fighting against this really sort of giant misshapen but nearly indestructible behemoth and uh uh you know the idea of uh or it's like a rocky movie you know apollo creed versus rocky like fighting style uh but yeah I, I really like that i like when uh uh peanut butter and chocolate come together mm -hmm. speaking of analogies and flavors coming together how long have you had the ice cream cone analogy in your head because that was so good it's so oh, memorable thanks. and it's so easy to visualize and conceptualize oh thanks you know i uh i've had that one i've used that before because i started uh i was i love to go speak at college classes about writing and uh i do it because it makes me like writing otherwise i don't like writing I only like writing when I'm telling people about it, like people that want to do it for young people. Then I, I tell them all the things that I used to think and used to feel and, and, and I get excited again. Uh, but if I don't do that, I just, I get, I, I forget all the good stuff and I just get caught up in, uh, it sure is sunny outside, maybe I should just go outside. Uh, but uh, uh, the ice cream cone one comes from the college class uh, circuit I did. I was doing, and I, I did a workshop at UCLA. I taught for like five weeks or something like that. Um, and the ice cream cone straight from there, but I'm really glad you like it. Uh, I love when there's like a visual metaf metaphor like that. There's one, uh, uh, an old friend of mine did, I was so envious. Uh, he's such a good writer. Uh, one of the best, best writers I've ever met. J.R. Moringer, uh, a Pulitzer Prize winner, great terrific feature writer I worked with at the LA Times, but there's one story he did on a boxer and he's, he says that the punch, he brought the punch from behind him like a bouquet of flowers, like like a, like a, a par, uh, you know, a bow presenting a, a bouquet of flowers to his girlfriend. But just the idea of this, his fist being behind him and coming all the way forward. And like, I, I, I just love things that uh, have that simplicity, but that sort of vivid, uh, kind of unforgettable, you said, like, you know, I'll never forget that line. Uh, and maybe you'll never forget the ice cream cone. So that's great. Yeah, I always love it when somebody brings out a phrase that you can tell that the writer is absolutely gleeful about. <laughs> it it yeah. fills the reader in turn with so much joy. Oh, yeah, I love it. And that's what, you know, uh, journalists live for. Like, I people 
uh, you know, I, I can recite a lot of my favorite lines that I've done. Yeah, you uh, did for your story <laughs> about um, oh, the police you. woman, yeah. Yeah, uh, and uh, people give me grief for it. Uh, and I say, you know, it's, it's not that it's, uh, it's not vanity, it's just that I worked on that for so long that it's, uh, it's, uh, it's an uh, obstacle course I, I just can't forget, you know, like, uh, and maybe a little bit of vanity too. <laughs> but like uh, my, I think my favorite one was Suge Knight, uh, the interview I did with Suge Knight, because I, uh, I asked him a question. I always bring it up in classes too, because I asked him a question uh, and I didn't listen to the answer. I asked him a question I didn't care about specifically so I could look around because uh, I was in his office. And, you know, Suge Knight, obviously the, the rap kingpin, kingpin and, uh, you know, who's been in prison uh, multiple times and, uh, you know, most recently for uh, a slain uh, affiliated with Straight Outta Compton uh, filming. Um, so I was in his office and I, I called Suge up and I said, I want to spend like a day with you. I want to do uh, a story, a day in the life of Suge Knight. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. And uh, uh, sure enough, he, he let me do it. And at this point in the interview, it was almost dawn and uh, I was in his office. I just wanted to look around and make some notes because it was such an interesting place to be. And uh, the visual writing, I think is the best. And because I did that, I was able to write this uh, or something that's pretty close to this it was, Um, I've also got it here if you need. No, I get. I, I, oh, I, think I, I pulled it up. <laughs> uh, well, now let's see how close I can be. Because what year was that? Uh, the one I'm looking at is 2002. So I hope that yeah, I'm looking at the right it. one. Yeah, that's it. Because it was kind of a well, well uh, regarded piece. Um, it's 5 a.m. and the party at the Playboy Mansion's been over for hours as Suge Knight arrives back in his darkened office on Wilshire Boulevard. As he lights an illegal Cuban cigar, the gold and platinum records on the wall behind him clint, clint like chrome in a low fog. It's at this point, as so often with night, the subject turns to murder. I fully expect to die a violent death, Knight says, but there ain't no one keeping me out of heaven, he adds, as if he will kick in the pearly gates. Pretty close. Mm -hmm. See, like uh, I love the, anytime you can show people stuff you know and there's, there's all this coded language in there you know like the chrome and um you know the the rims uh, kind of evoke urban stuff you know mm -hmm. the cuban cigars the affluence and the legal the the you know sort of the the criminal aspects of his life but, yeah i wonder if um well, if Zwick was still here, I know I'm a fan of historical fiction, and I think so much of the project of creating works that evoke a certain time period, you, your audience hungers for those little details in those Absolutely. little, not necessarily great names or recognizable historical events or conventions. It's more of these little glimpses into how people would be immersed in their own world. Absolutely. The How, day to day details yeah. that are so grounding that puts you there. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a, you're exactly right. You know, and, and, and it's interesting to see how people strive for that 
you know, Michael Mann, who's also from Chicago, um, uh, and, you know, one of the most meticulous filmmakers ever, one of the great guys, um, a, a, an intense guy. Uh, and he had made political documentary films early in his career. So he has a journalist approach as well in, in a, a different tonality. But with something like Public Enemies and stuff, he does such exhaustive research and looks for so many details and puts them in the set and talks about the upholstery on cars that you know the viewer never sees. But he says that having the authenticity of that, that if he knows it's there and if the actors know that it's there, then they feel transported and they it's one less thing that's dividing them from the place they are and the place that they want the, the viewer to think they are that uh, that it has benefits and, and um, you know and he like on the film Heat there's this part uh, where Val Kilmer's got uh, this work bag and he's running with it and uh, he's part of a heist crew and Michael Mann asked him on the set he goes uh, what's in that bag and he goes uh, what's in the bag I don't know well then how do you know how heavy it is how do you know how to run what's in the bag and you know, go find out like what's in that bag, and then you'll know. And then, does that make that scene? Does the, the audience know that hey, Valkyrie's running like that thing weighs thirty pounds; it should weigh eighty. No, of course not. But the next time that Val Kilmer did that scene, you know he was a different performer. You know, like it, it, that's I'm, I'm sort of fascinated by that. Yeah, it's accuracy, not for its own sake, but accuracy with the goal of I'm not exactly sure how you'd put this but the goal of making the project feel real and having the characters emit sensations and emotions exactly. that will make it the environment feel real yeah for example um, I was reading a book it was historical fiction and for accuracy's sake the characters go into some sort of shop and they see an inventory and it's literally just some list of a Elizabethan inventory that is there just because the author found it somewhere uh, in yeah. some sort of historical book and I'm like what does this <laughs> what does this mean right I mean you could do it where the characters see an object and they look around and they realize right. that this is a well-to-do shop or Right. certain you know thimble reminds them of their mother or something like that but when you're just kind of throwing it in without the purpose yeah. of without story narrative purpose yeah reality i think can only be done through the characters if you just throw around details it's a it's a very kind of technical and yeah uh disconnected reality in, in quotation yeah. marks yeah, you're like exactly it's there right. on paper, but in terms of what the audience can appreciate as real um, or feel as tactile, it's very shallow. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Or, or hollow. It feels hollow, like it, mm -hmm. or, or meaningless. You know, like yeah, it's putting that uh, inventory list in the in in that story flow is like putting a receipt in to prove that you went somewhere like mm -hmm. it's just it's it has no purpose other than for the the, the author to uh, uh show that they found some primary re reference material and that they're going to mm -hmm. include it yeah it's uh 
you know, to find a way to organically weave that in, that's the, that's the, the secret sauce. And that's the reason things like, you know, like that Alienist miniseries, I thought like uh, the first one was so good and, or something like Gangs of New York or, or uh, Last of the Mohicans where, you know, Michael Mann, you know, mm -hmm. rebuilt the fort that is in the movie. But uh, that delicate balance, you know, and, and uh, I'd love to do a thing, uh, maybe we can do uh, with guests is I'd love to do a series on uh, journalists who became Hollywood people, you know, because there's mm -hmm. quite a few, you know, and, and, and some of them really, you know, pretty well celebrated um, a whole bunch of people. So that'd be a lot of fun. Yeah. And I was, I was wondering, as we talk about objects and you obviously, um, when you were with night, your eyes were drawn to the frames and the cigar when you, and you talked about during the, the two badges story, your eyes went to her hands and her height. When you're preparing a story, are there any objects or I don't want to say paraphernalia because that has connotations, but yeah. uh, oh, like in Pirates of the Caribbean where Jack Sparrow says, my effects, please. Any effects <laughs> that encompass a person, is there anything you find yourself repeatedly going back to? Uh, uh... You know, I, I, t I, I talk a lot about how people walk. I notice that or how they carry themselves or how uh, I also try to uh, um, show them in the, pro in, in the process, you know, a lot of, uh, when possible, which isn't always easy. Like I had an interview with uh, Shelby Lynn, the country, country singer, and uh, she's really hard to earn her trust because she's been through so much, uh, her and her sister, uh, Alison Moore, the other, another great country singer. Um, they had a family tragedy uh, involving their parents uh, that left both their parents dead. Um, it's a murder-suicide. And, and you can imagine that that's just uh, one of those things that every time that she's going to do an interview, it, there's this dread that that's going to come up or that's going to be part of it and how it will be handled and things like that. So she, her reflexes to, um, has been traditionally to, to keep journalists uh, at bay. And I knew that, um, and we met at a restaurant and it, it started off really kind of uh, slow and awkward. And I just said, you know what, let's, let's go record shopping. And I took her record shopping at Amoeba, the greatest record store in Los Angeles and, and maybe anywhere. And, uh, and she immediately lost herself in, oh, wow, this James Brown, you know, I'm just, this Dusty Springfield, you know, like talking about what these different albums meant. Uh, it was an entry point into something that was tragic, but also an entry point into something uh, in her life, early memories that were great that I never would have probably accessed otherwise, you know? So I, I really like to describe people doing things. And so I'll try to find ways to take them on little activities, but they don't, they don't always go for it, but sometimes they do. I, I talked Quentin Tarantino into giving me a tour of LA, uh, you know, uh, Tarantino's LA, like mm -hmm. show me your favorite coffee shop, your favorite restaurant, your favorite movie theater. And we like drove around for like four hours and get a bobblehead of himself on the dashboard. Uh, and the car was the, you know, like the, the Uma Thurman, the bride co costume from uh, Kill Bill, it's that color scheme. and big you know muscle car and uh 
that gives you a lot to write about. You know, like uh, it's not just him sitting and telling. He, he could have just told me that stuff, but instead I get him driving around and walking in places and interacting with people and things like that. Uh, it's always great. I love to watch famous people interact with not famous people. Uh, so I try to make that happen. The first time I met Clint Eastwood, uh, that happened. I got him. We, we walked into the back entrance of a museum at the Warner Brothers lot, like a, a props and stuff. And there's these tourists that are on this tour and they're there like looking at like the, the plane from Firefox or, you know, uh, Dobby from Harry Potter or, uh, you know, uh, uh, the Catwoman costume from Batman. And we come in a side door and they don't see us come through. And we like walk through and there's like 22, ter uh, 22 tourists around us. And we kind of just walk, Clint Eastwood walks between all these people and, and I'm with him and uh, none of them see us. And, and, we, and he, if this was the end of our, our time together, the interview had gone really well. It was the first time I met him and he was in a really good mood and I was too. And he, he, he did this for, for me and for the story. He stopped and there was uh, uh, his costume from Unforgiven. And he sort of parked himself in front of it for a second. And there was a guy looking at it. The guy looked at the costume and then looked next to him and saw that it was Clint Eastwood. And then looked at the costume and then looked back and saw it was Clint Eastwood. And his head did that like four more times, like faster and faster. And then I thought he was going to fall over. And Clint looked at him and said, I thought he'd be taller. You know, because the costume uh, would be, I thought Clint would be, would be taller, he, he said, and just walked off. And he, he did that so I would have a way. I mean, that's a great thing in the story. So I stopped and got the guy's name. He's a guy from Florida and stuff like that. Uh, but uh, anytime uh, I could set up things like that, I always would. How did Tarantino walk? Because he's a bit of a meme on the internet with kind of, not necessarily walking, but standing around his house looking at things. Yeah. If yeah. you've seen those. Yeah, he he went to like the Ed Sullivan School of Posture. Um, yeah, I, I I have seen those, and I I mean he's such a he's such a, a bundle of uh, you know ticks and genius, and uh, he, it's it's hard to talk to him in a way because if you're a journalist uh, or if you're a pop culture person, because if you you can't get in a ping pong match, match, you know, because you end up talking so much about pop culture that you don't learn anything about him. You know, everything is about stuff he took in and distilled and kind of, but to like say, you know, you know, the reason you know so many movies is because as a kid, you know, you were cut loose and you get on the bus and you go to these really divey, dungy, uh, dingy theaters and see all these movies and stuff. And like, what was that like? You know, like talking about that's, it's harder to get him to drill down into that. Um, so uh, it's, he's a little frustrating to me sometimes. Sorry, you said drill down into? Into that material. Like to, okay. it's, it's harder as, a, as someone that's interviewing him, it's harder to get down past the, the kind of the referential stuff mm -hmm. uh, and just find out something about him, you know? But I mean, in a way that's Tarantino is he is uh, the sum of his influences so in a way he's like a human collage you know yeah I uh, think you and Zwick were talking about filmmakers who did something else versus filmmakers who were only filmmakers and are are thus totally immersed in other films and yeah. filmography yeah I mean it's it, it is interesting and uh you know somebody like uh 
you get the feeling that the, the directors like John Ford, I mean, when you show up and you have an eye patch on and you're that guy, like you get the feeling that you're bringing a lot of experiences into the, into the, the uh, project. It's not just, uh, you know, a, uh, a composite of your favorite things. It's not a highlight film of, you know, like to me, like if I, if I, if I never see another Star Wars reference in a movie, like a little tip of the hat to like the trench scene or a, another cantina, I'd be fine. Like, you know, like after like 35 years of those, I, I, I mean, I get it. Everybody's like, yay, you know, uh, I, I, I understand it. And I, I don't, uh, I'm not hostile toward it, but I am also a little tired of it. I think we've reached a critical mass in the evolution of Star Wars, where now Star Wars also just exists to reference Star Wars itself. I think another <laughs> another 200 years, it will probably be a religion. I mean, it actually will be a full religion, probably. I wonder if there are any practicers of Jedi religion. Oh, yeah, sure. I'm sure, yeah. Yeah, sure, sure. Uh, you know, uh, in like... Yeah, I think like, it totally could be a religion. And it, it's already become seasonal. Like uh, there's things like the Beatles and, and and Star Wars, they're like, you know, the nutcracker now. Like they, they, it's not, you know, if you see it, it's when you see it, it'll be back. Mm -hmm. Trust me, that thing's not going anywhere. <laughs> like it's, uh, uh, it's, it's somehow, or like Shakespeare, you know, it's like Shakespeare in the park, you know, or summer. You never expect people not to be doing Shakespeare. Any, mm -hmm. If there was a year where there was no Shakespeare, everybody would notice, you know, and that's like that with Star Wars now. So. I don't like Ewoks though. Oh, I'm, I'm sorry. I just don't like them. I think they're cute, but so disturbing. I read this fan theory online. I think I mentioned it at one point that attempts to explain why the Ewoks so easily master and hijack the stormtroopers technology. Yeah. Um, you know how they can jump on the forest bike and immediately fly it, which yeah, one sense. can, you know, if one is operating in the regular 2d world, one can just say, well, the f script writers just needed yeah. to have the bears on the bike but if you're playing like 5d chess with star wars yeah this person theorizes that why do these primitive primitively living creatures have such an affinity for technology especially technology they've never encountered before perhaps the ewoks were once a super high-tech civilization and below the vines and the jungles and the overgrowth, kind of like the Yucatan, there lies the remains of their previous high-tech existence, that they just have brains that are innately wired to um, thrive and master and produce technology. But why don't they? Why do they instead have spears and, you know, practice cannibalism? And it's like, because they turn their backs on that, they would rather live in this most dangerous game world where they are, you know, living this primordial, furious, savage existence, which was a bit darker than, than I was planning on getting when I started reading. <laughs> that sounds about right. I think, I think you, that, that all sounds right. It's one of my favorite like Star it. Wars theories. It's, it's yeah. disturbing and... 
because it perfectly yeah. juxtaposes what the Ewoks are hinted at doing versus how cute they are. So. Yeah. Well, you know, it's, I, I, I think uh, perhaps uh, he's onto something, he or she's onto something. But the, uh, you know, I think that's my bitterness is because they were supposed to be Wookiees. You know, it was supposed to be the Wookiee planet and the, it's going to be like Zulu Dawn and, you know, number versus technology and Wookiees ripping arms off. And, and then it got to teddy bears and then the teddy bears throw rocks and, and the rocks kill stormtroopers. And then look, if, if you're wearing armor all day long, and a teddy bear throws a rock at you and it, it kills you, just lose the armor. It's not helping. Like, it, it, what does that armor do? If it doesn't mm -hmm. stop that, a teddy bear with a stick, why are we, why are we wearing the armor? I mean, mm. really? Yeah. That's my thing, you know? So, numb, numb. Yeah. But don't you get sad, though, in the little <laughs> scene where the one Ewok gets, like, shot with a blaster and then its little friend goes to it and tries to wake it up and it can't? Yeah, and then and then that just makes me mad at the filmmaker, okay? Yeah. Guys, I'm just like, now nah, you just kick an Ewok. Yeah, that, that made me mad when I saw The Last Jedi and Chewbacca eats a Porg. Yeah. I was so attached to Porgs and then he eats them. Yeah. And not, not just he eats them, but you can see the terror, fear, and crisis in the other Porg's eyes as they're watching their friend or sibling or mother get eaten. It's like veal. Rotisseried. Yeah. And it's like, I wonder if Chewbacca has just triggered this 2001-like evolutionary event in Porgs where they become aware of their own mortality. Like, because that's what you see in its eyes. And then it's like, ha ha, yeah. he ate a Porg. He, he, he. And it's like, it's really strange. It's really strange. Yeah, there's a lot of things in, in Star Wars that you know need to be accounted for, but uh, yeah, I'm. What can you do? Working here at Heavy Metal, we have contracts that creators sign when we kind of produce or distribute their IPs, and I want to have one that we will never kill a cute animal. Sorry, there's my dog. He agrees. <laughs> He's speaking out for uh, for uh, supporting character rights. Uh, like, yes, do not eat that animal. Uh, that's good. Sorry, I get a bit passionate about little animals in film. Totally get it. Totally get it. Uh, I'm all for it. But uh, yeah, those Ewoks. I don't know. Yeah, and I, right. I, I, I told you it's the uh, the teddy bear luau. That was that got me on George Lucas's bad side when I called it. I dismissed the end of Return of the Jedi as as uh, ending the. Uh, Hollywood's greatest space opera with a teddy bear luau. Bitter. Yeah. I saw some a kid wearing a shirt that said teddy bear luau. At oh, a, congrats. At a convention. And I was so proud. I was so Let proud. me see. I, I will, if I can find it on the internet, I will add a description. That's hilarious. That's funny. Yeah. I think I saw it. It's, I got credit for that. There's a couple that I've cited as the first Inceptor of uh, uh, Google Kanger. If you Google yourself <clears throat> and you find someone that has the same name, mm -hmm. you're like doppelganger, oh, okay. Google Ganger, mm -hmm. and uh, ego Google, ego Google, when you Google yourself. Yeah, mm -hmm. that was way back when, like when the internet first started. So that's my claim to fame. It's not well, congrats. I love how we started the episode with memorable phrases and you produced a lot more. So 
There you go. Now Ewok or Teddy Bear Luau is going to be stuck playing in my brain. (laughs) That's great. That's great. So thank you so much. Uh, This has been Jeff Boucher's Mindspace. As promised, I will I will scour the internet for Teddy Bear Luau shirts. Maybe we should change our logo. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. No, I don't want to I don't want to make George mad again. It, it took me so long <laughs> to, to, mend, to mend fences. Okay. Uh, and I, I you know, I still owe him because of the ping pong table uh, incident. You know, we have a bad history with ping pong table. I'll tell that story sometime. All right, stay tuned. <laughs> this has been Jeff Boucher's Mindspace. See you guys next time.